Well, I, I have, can you guys hear me okay? Uh, you know, I had a lot of faith. We set up extra chairs. <laughs> and, and I don't know what happened. You guys don't have enough faith. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't set up extra chairs for this. Uh, Tommy reminded me that the Cowboys game is on, so that explains so much, so much about this. No, you know what? C- come rain, come shine. If there was only one person here, I'm still doing this thing. So you guys are, you guys are stuck with me. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's begin. I'm grateful to have you guys. Uh, I'm grateful for this, this time in our church as we, you know, as I said this morning, we begin a new chapter in the life of our church, you know, sort of Christ Community Church rebooted, um, you know, Christ Community 2.0, um, you know, new look, same great taste. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up here. But I, I'm, really, I'm really excited for, for where we're going as a church, and, and I'm glad that, uh, to be a part of it with you. Uh, let me uh, pray. And then we'll dive right in. Again, don't forget, there's my number right there. Hopefully the, the numbers aren't too small. But, uh, you know, this, uh, will, this will be the, the most, easily the most challenging of, of all the topics that we cover. So um, I hope you got a nap this afternoon because um, you will need the, uh, uh, the added mental strength to endure what I'm about to inflict upon you. I love persecuting the saints with theology. So you're really in for it tonight. All right, so let me pray, and then we're going to dive right in. And again, as usual, uh, stand up anytime you want, grab more food, bring it in, and you know, wave banners or streamers or something in the background. I'm okay with that. Just kind of anything goes tonight. Okay, maybe don't do that. It's a little much. But uh, this is real low-key, so um, all right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, doing theology is a weighty task. This is weighty, and, and the subject, the topic tonight, O oh Lord, is, of a special, is especially challenging and difficult and um, taxing on our minds, and yet, Lord, and yet anything um, that is worth believing usually is. Lord, anything that, that uh, it always is hard to drill through uh, rock to get through the oil, but once you get to the oil, the effort was worth it, and that's really, I believe, what tonight will be, Lord. So we need your help. We need you to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We need you to help us to understand, to have clear minds, to be able to see what the text actually has to say, Lord. If there's any topic that seems like that we have preconceived notions that we want to force onto the text, it's with this issue right here. So as we shift paradigms, Lord, as we um, adjust thinking, as we um, challenge different presuppositions that we might bring to the text, I pray that you would um, help us to not be uh, defensive or 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 cynical, but but that we would yield in submission. We would melt in submission to what your word has to say about the death of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would be more in love with Christ and more fascinated by his death, and and that our church would be more strengthened for the Great Commission because of what we see from your word tonight. So. Help us, strengthen us, enable us. Please do this always and only for the glory of your Son as we know you will. And Lord, we know that a church that thinks theologically, well, Lord, if that's done well, Lord, that we will be more and more zealous, kindled in our zeal for your global cause. So to that end, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as you know, we, uh, this is the, I guess, the, the fourth week, uh, fourth you know, session in our, our series on the doctrines of grace. It started off as a five-part series. It'll probably be, or five, it'll be a six-part series. So, um, and it's on the doctrines of sovereign grace. 
And again, as, as I say every time, when we, when we talk about the, the doctrines of grace, all we're doing is, is talking about a, a summary of God's grace in salvation. That's what we mean when we talk about the doctrines of grace. It's a summary of God's grace and salvation. Put it another way, what we're doing, this is a summary way to describe all the things that God had to do to save you from eternal woe and despair. That's what we're talking about. We talk about the doctrines of grace. Um, and, And what I really love about this is that what the doctrines of grace are are not just a few cherry-picked doctrines, like it's just kind of a couple things, well, I just want to talk about this. No, what this is, is this is the very story of Christianity. It's the very story of Christianity. What this is, is is God's pursuit of our highest joy at the cost of his son's life to replace our blindness with spiritual sight and to replace our, our longing for spiritual poison for a hunger for God's all-satisfying perfections. That's what the doctrines of grace are about. And so, so really what this is, is doctrine, this is the, the mountaintops of salvation, but it's the story of Christianity. And why there are five doctrines in particular is because, as I say every time, back in the 1600s, some scholars, pastors, theologians, they, they did the church a real favor and, and they formed a condensed, packaged way of displaying the glory of God in salvation. And so, um, so if you read, uh, and I encourage you to read this, I just finished it this week, but the Canons of Dort, kind of an odd sounding name, but in the six, 1619, these pastors, theologians, scholars, uh, basically formed this doctrinal statement, which is where we get the doctrines of grace. And they're getting it from the Bible. It's, fan, it's a fantastic read, gripping stuff. And these five doctrines, they, again, we say this every time, they don't say everything there is to say about salvation. It doesn't say everything, but, but what it does is, as I said, give the mountaintops of salvation. So these doctrines, what they do is they most conspicuously put God in his rightful place as the all-sufficient giver of grace, and they put us in our rightful place as the needy beneficiaries of that grace. That's what these doctrines are doing. And again, what are the doctrines of grace? What, what are they? I, I know we've, we've reviewed these, but, but I want these to, to always be on the tip of your tongue. And, and honestly, uh, these, could be, these are low-hanging fruit for family devotions. Th- these really are. I mean, you could take these and do them over and over again at the breakfast table or, or at dinner with your kids and, and talk about what these doctrines are. And this is, this is a really good framework for them to understand the Bible. But what are the doctrines of grace? They don't have to be in any particular order, but what do we have? Total depravity. Total depravity. And Charles, what is total depravity? We are all depraved completely... We have, we have no merit. We, have, we are not worthy of the salvation we have through Christ. Very good. Yeah, absolutely, right? And, and, and we are as bad as we possibly could be. We don't always act as naughty as we could, but there are the seeds of every sin within our hearts. And, and, and because of that, we don't deserve any, we don't deserve anything but judgment, right? So, so we are born totally depraved. And another element of that is that we are born incapable of, of, as the scriptures make clear, we are born incapable of even repenting and believing on our own. God has to intervene. God has to awaken the heart. God has to open blind eyes for us to even be able to see Christ in order to see his beauty, see his glory in even be able to believe. Okay, what's another one? Unconditional election. Unconditional election. And Bobby, what is unconditional election? God has chosen 
us before the foundation of time? Very good. Yeah, God has chosen us. So I can't say, speak and write at the same time, clearly. Yeah, that, that God has chosen particular people before time to be the recipients of salvation, right? And, and, and again, this just, if, you just, if you just literally took 10 minutes one day and you thought about nothing but unconditional election and what it means, what would you be doing at the end of those 10 minutes? Worshiping. Right? It would just totally just transform uh, your entire life. I mean, th- th- this, is, this is staggering, especially if you juxtapose it to total depravity. I was this, but before time, God chose me. That is incredible. Okay, number three, or just a third one. Particular atonement. Okay. James, you want to take a crack at what particular atonement is? I know we haven't talked about this one yet. Yeah, uh, particular atonement basically meaning that Christ's death um, atoned for the sins of a particular people. Very good. Yes, and not, not unlimited atonement, which might be of all, would be Right, yeah. So that could be construed in a couple of different ways. But yeah, very good. So, so in particular atonement, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, that Christ died for a particular group of people, namely the elect, right? And, and, and that, that Christ's death was not for every person without exception, every individual person without exception, but that he died in particular for the elect. Okay, very good. All right, next. Irresistible grace, grace, which is? Uh, That those who are the elect are not able to turn away from God. They want to. They they are given by God the eyes to see and therefore... Very good. Are going toward grace, whether they <laughs> without real choice. Kind of yeah, well, uh, and be careful there. Yeah. You know, there there always is real choice, but but you are right, one hundred percent right, in that God intervenes in such a way without minimizing our personal responsibility, but that God intervenes in such a way that opens our eyes to see, that that awakens the heart to be able to believe, that gives us ears to be able to hear the gospel, that that does something of a particular nature in the heart that enables us to. Uh, repent and believe and be saved. So we'll, we'll get to that next time. And I love this. This is such a, this is so rich and so good. And we'll wrestle with all the complexities of that. And then last but not least is perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. And Charles, which is? He gives us what we, I mean, he, perseveres as he gives us what we need yeah. to prevent us from falling away. He gives us that grace. Very good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, li- I like that. I like how you turned it even to a verb. He perseveres us. That's really good. He causes us to persevere, right? Um, and, and, and that's really good. And, and, and does that mean that we don't have to try, that we can do whatever we want, you know, that we can just kind of, you know, just, you know, be kind of hellraisers and just do whatever we want and, and you know, hey, we're going to get to heaven anyway. It's not at all what that's saying. It's saying that, that God works infallibly through his word to strengthen us to persevere, to the end, right? And so we'll wrestle with all the complexities of that. And, and, and we'll also, when we get to that, we'll get to the if texts, you know, th- those really, like, especially those Hebrews texts, like that, you know, you will be saved if you persevere to the end. Whoa, 
gives you chills, right? And so, so well, what is that? How does that square with this? So we'll wrestle with all that. But those are the doctrines of grace. And, and I want you to love those and, and think about those. And again, if you took any one of those and, and literally just spent 10 minutes just thinking about those, just, just one at a time, you, your life would begin to transform. Uh, so we uh, began with unconditional election. Again, the, the truth that God in eternity past chose some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and gave them to his son for whom the son would die and purchase with his blood. So that's unconditional election. And then we saw uh, total depravity, um, which is that as a result of original sin, every person is born with every aspect of who they are completely infected and polluted with sin to such a degree that they are only controlled entirely by sin all the time. And on their own, they are incapable of breaking free from sin's control. That's long and that is devastating. And tonight we get to particular atonement particular atonement. And again, this one is going to require a, 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 lot of, a lot of mental exertion, and yet it's going to be so worth it in the end. I, I, I will give you every single dollar that I have in my wallet, which is not a risk for me because I don't have any in my wallet. But if I did, I would give you everything that I had uh, and let you know that, that although this is going to be work, uh, we will walk away more thrilled and exhilarated by the death of Christ. Now, when we think about the death of Christ, so here we go. When we think about the death of Christ, what, what, ha- what has to land on us with stunning force is that the death of Christ, the sin-bearing, substitutionary, sacrificial death of Christ, uh, is that it was a death that was planned and premeditated in eternity past. Just think about that for a second. It just never ceases to amaze me that the death of Christ was premeditated. It was a premeditated murder planned by God in eternity past. So, for instance, Acts 2, 22 and 23, listen very carefully. It says, Israelite men, hear these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man having been attested from God to you with powers and wonders. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, if you remember. With powers and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know, after crucifying him, you put him to death through the hands of lawless men. Here's what it says. This one was delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. Christ was delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. So what I love about this is that it indicates that Christ was not some helpless victim in the clutches of his enemies. He was the, the Messiah who came to die for his enemies. Here's another one, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For in truth, there were gathered together in the city against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, here are the people that were gathered against him, that conspired to kill him, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Why? In order to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So those people only did what God had predestined to occur. Unbelievable. So my point in bringing this up is, is that the death of Christ as a whole, that was very particular how it would happen and in what way it would happen and that it would happen and when it would happen. Everything was, was configured and planned out beforehand. But you see, um, the, the thing that we want to get down to is the nature of that death. And, and I'll even say one more thing about the, the fact that this was at 
the death of Christ was at the center of this, I, I, find it, I find it really fascinating that the entire plan of salvation hung on a three-hour transaction in which Jesus Christ took the wrath that he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. That, to me, that is, that is just so, I mean, not just to me, just period, that is unbelievable. But again, when we talk about the death of Christ, it's the exact nature of that death. In other words, what did it accomplish and for whom did it accomplish it? That's what we're talking about when we talk about particular atonement. Um, so really, all, all we're doing is when we talk about particular atonement, we are going to zoom in on the details and we're going to explore what exactly is it that the death of Christ accomplished. And, and this is really important that we learn more and more about the death of Christ. When we first became believers and, and you know, we sort of had entry-level sort of knowledge of the death of Christ, that is fine. That is totally fine. We, we didn't have to understand this at our conversion. You know, it, it was enough to know, look, I'm a sinner. Christ died for sinners. I really need what he paid for. I should be in hell. I trust him. And that's good. But, but it's time to raise our knowledge of the death of Christ to the next theological level. Not because it makes us more smart or more intelligent than other bozos, but, but really because the, the deeper into the death of Christ we go, the more we see the majesty of God. The deeper into the death of Christ we go, the more the practical effects and ramifications we feel for our lives. So what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, the more we understand what the death of Christ did, the more we're, we're going to be able to see the effects on um, our lives and our evangelism and our parenting and our perseverance through trials and our holiness and sanctification and evangelism. Even the most pixelated details of our lives are going to be affected and changed by particular atonement. In other words, this is really, really practical. So here's the question. What is particular atonement? Don't answer out loud. This is where I'm going next. I'm in part two in your notes here. What is particular atonement? Um, subtitle, Breaking the Bank but Discovering Buried Treasure, because that's really what, what we're doing. And, and particular atonement, it, it sounds complex, right? It sounds tricky. It sounds sophisticated. It sounds kind of cold and clinical, but, but trust me when I say that although it's very Although it's very challenging to our thinking, uh, it is the opposite of cold and clinical. In fact, I, I, you will walk away more exhilarated by the love of God for you because of our study. It's so worth it to, to deep sea dive into the death of Christ. So what is particular atonement? So let's, let's begin with, I had, here it is. Um, let's begin by asking the question, Okay, if we're going to figure out what particular atonement is, let's ask the question, let's break it down. What is the atonement? Paying for. Okay. P paying for what? The debt of sin. Yeah, paying the debt of sin. Good. The blood sacrifice that covers the sin. Very good. Like Leviticus and the sacrifices. Very good. Uh, very good. Yeah, a blood sacrifice that, that, that atones for sin, that pays for sin, right? What else? Well, all of that to bring the two parties back together. Very good, exactly. Because if you if you look at the the constituent parts here, at one meant, you see what's built into the term is that you're taking two parties and you're making them one. Now again, that's English. That's not what the what the the Hebrew word is is doing. But that's what the word. But that's essentially what the Hebrew term is describing too. Is that you are taking two opposing parties and you are making them one, right? So the the Hebrew term. Not that this is super helpful. 
Um, but uh, the Hebrew term is kafer, uh, and that is the idea to, to cover one's sin, to remove punishment, to appease divine wrath, to make amends, to provide reconciliation. So when the Old Testament uses that word to atone, that's what it's talking about, to cover one's sin, to remove punishment, to appease wrath, make amends, provide reconciliation. It's two opposing parties, and it's, it's providing something that will reconcile them and make them one. That's what the atonement is. So when an Old Testament saint offered a sacrificial animal to be slaughtered in their place, think Passover now, uh, that removing of God's wrath, the reconciliation to Yahweh, the restoration of a relationship, the forgiveness of, a sin, of sin, all of that put together is, is atonement. It's kafer. That's, that's what's being described here. And, um, and, and, and of course, the, the New Testament, you know, obviously upholds that same thing. Christ was the lamb of God, right? So, so Christ was the ultimate lamb to which all the sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament were pointing First uh, uh, Corinthians five seven calls Christ our Passover, so Christ is the ultimate Passover Lamb that all the other Passover lambs in history were pointing to. Christ is the one who provides the atonement. So, so the atonement basically means that Christ purchases and pays for. Uh, um, he he purchases everything that we need to reconcile us to God. He appeases God's wrath. He reconciles us to God. He removes every obstacle that prevents us from having eternal life. So, so you get the picture, right? That's, that's atonement. It, it takes care of our sin problem. Now, when we talk about particular atonement, what do we mean? What we mean is, is that the death that Christ died was designed and intended for a particular group of people. In other words, a particular atonement is pointing out the, the reality that when Christ died, he did not die for an undefined, sort of, sort of indistinct, sort of just mass of people. In other words, he did not die for everybody, but for nobody in particular. Rather, the death that he died, he died in particular for a specific group of people who were selected in advance beforehand. That's what particular atonement is saying. So in other words, when we talk about particular atonement, we're talking about the intention of Christ's death. We're talking about the design of his death. We're talking about the purpose of his death, the extent of his death, for, for whom was it designed and what did it accomplish? So, so here's the kind of questions, and I know this is, this is heady stuff, and this is a lot to take in. Um, I'm just going to keep pouring gas on the fire here. So, so when, we, when we think about a particular atonement, here's the kind of questions that we need to wrestle. You don't have to write these down. They're probably in your notes. Here's the questions we need to think about with particular atonement. We need to think about the question, for whom did Christ die in particular? For whom, for whom did he die in particular? For whom was it intended and designed? What does the Bible actually say? I think we have, I think we have some kind of general ideas and some kind of smudgy, well, there's pieces of verses that we've got, but, but what does the Bible actually say? Here's another one. What was the death of Christ actually designed to accomplish? What was it designed to accomplish? What does the Bible tell us? 
You see, we've got, see we, we kind of have some soft, spongy thinking about this, but what do the scriptures actually say about what his death actually accomplished? Let's put it this way. Uh, did the death of Christ only achieve the possibility of people being saved? Or, or did it actually secure the salvation for those whom it was intended? Do you see the difference between those? Did it only create the possibility of some being saved? Or did it actually purchase and pay for in full the salvation for whom it was intended? Here's another one. Did Christ die for every single individual person without exception? Did he die for every single person without exception? If he did, in what sense did he die for those who are currently in hell? Do you understand the question? Okay, if he, if he really died for every single person without exception, well then in what sense did he die for those who are currently being punished for their sin? That's, that's an interesting question. Did he die, let's put it this way, did he die in the same way for them as he did for me? And, and people say, well, the Bible says that Christ died for all. That's true. But what does the Bible mean by all? Are, are, are there any footnotes, any asterisks by the word all? Who is the all that the Bible describes? We, 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 we shouldn't guess. What does, the, what does the text actually say? Does all really describe every single individual sinner without exception? Or is there another way to understand the all for whom Christ died? So let's, let's boil it down into two questions. I came prepared here. Watch this. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. All right. Okay. So those like seven questions that I just asked, I boiled it down into two. Here they are. Did Christ die? So this, th- these are your options when it comes to the death of Christ. Did Christ die for every single individual person without exception? Every single individual in history. Did he die for them? Or two... Did Christ die in a particular way for a particular group of people, namely the elect? Okay, do do those questions make sense? Did he die for every single individual without exception? Or did he die in a particular way for a particular group of people? Now, here's the thing. If you answer yes to number one, if you say, you know, I believe that Christ died, and, and by the way, if this is the position you take, no harm, no foul. You, you can be a member here, okay? There, you, you are not ousted. There's not like a particular atonement club, and we're going to be really mean to you if, if you, you don't believe this. So th- th- this, is, this is a good discussion. This is an in-house discussion. Uh, the rules of love don't change depending on your, on your view, so don't feel silly if you don't believe this. But I want you to believe it because I believe it's in the Bible, Okay, but if, if this is your view, okay, I, I, I believe this. That means if you take number one, then you have to define the nature of the atonement in a way that is different than if you believe that Christ died only for the elect. You have to define the, elect, the, the atonement differently. You have to understand the atonement differently, and we'll see how. If you answer yes to number one, then you have to explain how it is that Christ can bear the wrath of sinners if they still go to hell. Does that make sense? In what sense did he die for their sins and take their wrath if they wind up going to hell anyway? We have to wrestle with that. If you answer yes to number one, then you have to explain what the death of Christ actually accomplished if not every person gets saved. 
If not every person gets saved, and they won't, then we have to ask the question, well, what did his death actually accomplish in the moment? That's, that's the question. If you answer yes to number one, yes, I believe that, then you will be saying that Christ died in the same way for you as he did for those who are currently being punished for their sins. Now, I'm not saying that's a, a, that's a terrible position to have or that you're in trouble. Um, I'm just saying that's a, that's a theological contradiction that you have to wrestle with. And, and if you're going to insist on this position, then you have to live with that, with that incongruity that I, I think the Bible doesn't allow. I'll put it this way, uh, did Jesus die for Jezebel and Judas in the same way that he died for Jared Gilcher and John Piper? Okay, I don't mean to equate me with John Piper. Um, I, but I, I didn't mean it that way. Whatever. Okay, I'm out of here. I'm out. Okay, okay. I, no, what, I've got another one. If you answer yes to number one, then you're saying that Christ died for everybody, but for nobody in particular. Yes, what, what do you have there? Was that alliteration intentional? Jared, Judas, Jezebel, John? It was. It was. It, it's, it's always intentional. <laughs> <laughs> always. Yeah. I was blown away. I uh, I love alliteration. I love it. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Jared, before you got here, yeah. I believed number one yes. because of John three sixteen. Yeah. And uh, Did you change your mind already? No, no, and, and, and when I witnessed, yeah. I said he died for all, but not all are his because okay. they reject him. Okay. So the people that go to hell reject him. Mm. So that's what I believe. Okay, yeah. Before you got here. Oh, I see. I thought you meant before you got here, like in the parking lot, pulling in the parking lot. No. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. I'm saying that I've been uh, chewing on number two ever since the first time you said it. Okay. And and so uh, I see that, and for the first time I heard it. Yeah, really. I've never heard it before. Really, okay. And I've chewed on it, so... I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. And and and, and if that, if what the the thing you just raised, that tension you just raised, if that doesn't get discussed here, save it as a question and then ask it. Okay. And and if it takes the form of a question, that's really good. Uh, okay. Where where was I? Um, you started this. Okay. Uh, all right. If you answer yes to number one, you're, you're saying that Christ died for everybody but for nobody in particular, that his death didn't actually secure the salvation of anyone, but only created the possibility of their being saved. Now, the question is, is that what the Bible allows? Is that what the Bible suggests? That's what we have to wrestle with. Now, if you answer yes to number two, if you say, okay, I believe that Christ died only for the elect, then you're saying that Christ purchased and paid for in full with his death the treasure of salvation for a particular group of people, namely the elect. If you, say, if you take number two, then you're saying that Christ died not merely to make men savable, but to actually secure the salvation of those whom he died. If you answer yes to number two, then you are saying that Christ died in a distinct, particular way that is different from those who are now perishing in hell. 
If you answer yes to number two, you are saying that the design and the intention of the atonement was to infallibly obtain and secure the salvation of those whom the Father chose. And if you, if you answer yes to number two, you, you, dis, you immediately discover a great harmony between, between the works of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean, and I'm going to say more about this later. But if you answer yes to number two, you're essentially saying this. Okay, you've got the Father, and he chose these people. He chose the elect, right? And if you take view number two, you're saying that Christ died for the elect. And you're saying that the Spirit awakens and regenerates and seals those for whom Christ died and those whom the Father chose. But you see, if you, if you take view number one, you've got the Father uh, uh, choosing some and you've got Christ dying for everybody and you've got the Spirit who, who only regenerates and awakens some, so you've got the Father and, and, whoopsie, Father and the Son at cross purposes. You've got Trinitarian dissonance if you take view number one. If you take view number two, you have great harmony between the persons of the Trinity and, and you can tell that they're all accomplishing, working towards the same goal. Now, we'll, we'll say more about that about that later. So, so this is heady stuff, right? This, this is big. This is heady stuff. But again, I think this will be uh, clear and helpful and, and stimulating to our souls. Say what again? Oh yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm going to come back to it. Okay. So I, in fact, this wasn't planned to say it now. So that's probably, you know, that's always risky. Okay, so, so when, we, when we talk about particular atonement, here's what we mean. So let's just, let's just center the gravity and, and, and let's define it. So this is part three, what is particular atonement? I don't know where that is in your notes. Uh, and then I, it was way too long and complicated, so I reduced it down, so just probably better just to listen. Particular atonement means that the divine design of the death of Christ was intended only to purchase and pay for the salvation of those whom the Father chose. That the death of Christ was designed to pay for the salvation only of the elect whom the Father chose before time and gave to the Son to be his own possession. That's all it is. It's just, we're just saying Christ, the intention of Christ's death was only for the elect. That's all we're saying. That's all we're saying. So what we're saying is, is, in particular atonement, that Christ died not merely to, to make men savable, not merely to make them savable, rather that he actually purchased and paid for the salvation in full for those whom the Father chose. But particular atonement means, and this is a very important phrase, particular atonement means that Christ did not die for all people without exception. For every person without exception. He did not die for every person without exception, but that he died for all people without distinction. Here, here's what I mean. I had an eraser. Ah. Can I erase this? You cool with that? Well, I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I make the rules. You're the guy with the eraser? 
Yeah, I'm the guy with the eraser and the microphone, so it's a double win. Okay, so let me, let me uh, uh, this way. Okay, so particular atonement. Euler. <laughs> okay, English, Jared. Um, did I get it? It's always harder when you're up here. Uh, that's true. You know what? Maybe I'll do that. Okay, so what, what, what we're saying here is that Christ did not die for every individual. The reason why I'm writing this is because this wording is, I, I think is helpful. Not die for every individual without exception. Okay, does that make sense? Particular atonement is saying that he did not die for every single individual without exception. Rather, what it is saying that he died for all people without distinction. And what we mean by without distinction is that we mean some from every, uh, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Okay, so, so I, I wanted to write that so you can see it and, and to know that that's what we mean when we talk about particular atonement, that he did not die for every single individual person without exception, but that he did die for all people without distinction, some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Does that make sense? That's what we're saying when we talk about particular atonement. Now, I've got, now again, keep saving up questions because obviously in the short time that we have, I can't say everything that needs to be said. This, this takes a whole semester and I'm trying to do it in one night. So uh, save up your questions and we'll see if we can get to them. And I've got stuff from the Canons of Dort here and, and, and different things that will be helpful for you. But what, what I want to do now is I want to give you uh, five reasons why I think you should believe in particular atonement. I have five reasons why I think you should believe in particular atonement. And this is part four, and it's in your notes, and, and um, it's all there for you. So reason number one. Reason number one why I think you should believe. Oh, and here's also where we're going. I'm going I'm to talk about the five reasons why I think you should believe it. And then, after the break, I'm going to take the second half to describe all of the problem texts. The, the texts that people use to say, well... Yeah, but John 3.16. Yeah, but 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2.5. And yeah, 1 Timothy 4.10. And yeah, 1 John 2.2. 2, and 2 Peter 3.9. And all those texts that people used to say, see, see, particular atonement can't be true because, you know, this text says this. So, ha, gotcha. So I'm going to deal with every single problem text. I'll probably skip a few because we don't have time to hit all of them. But that's where we're going. So all the, you know, the, those texts that, you know, people in other theological camps use to, to battle this, we will... Deal with those. Okay, five reasons why I think you should believe in particular atonement. Number one, you should believe in particular atonement because it is demanded not by Calvinistic logic, but by explicit biblical texts. That's why. In other words, because the Bible says so. The Bible describes particular atonement. The reason why I throw in the comment about Calvinistic logic is even one of my good friends back in Spokane, um, even a guy on pastoral staff, he said, well... You know, I mean, particular atonement, it's just, it's just logic from, it's just Calvinistic logic. It's just logic from election. It's not actually in the Bible. And, and we had this conversation. It's like, well, actually, it is. 
It is in the Bible, explicit biblical text. And he saw it more as like it's just a, a Calvinistic thing, but it, it's not. It, it's actually in the Bible. So for instance, look at Isaiah 52. So it begins all the way in the Old Testament. All these texts should be in your notes here. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. And again, this is that great prophecy of the, uh, the Messiah who would come and, and he would bring salvation and he would justify many and he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And look, notice what it says. This is the father, this is Yahweh, the father speaking. Behold, my servant shall prosper or succeed. He shall be exalted and he shall be lifted up very high. As many were horrified at you, so his appearance was inhumanly disfigured more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. I'll explain what he's talking about. Thus he, that is the servant, he shall sprinkle many nations and concerning him, kings shall shut their mouths. So, kind of some crazy stuff. We're catching it, you know, midway through the prophecy, but uh, verse uh, 13 is describing the future exaltation of the servant. He will be exalted. Everything, you know, he is going to reign triumphant. Verse 14 talks about his suffering. And then verse 15, notice it uses this atonement-like language. Do you see that there where it says that he, the servant, will sprinkle many nations? Do you see that there in the text? He shall sprinkle. That word sprinkle is a term used dozens of times in Leviticus. It's atonement sacrificial language. When it talks about sprinkling the blood on the altar, sprinkling the people, or you know, sprinkling the book, and, and there's all this sprinkling going on, that cleansing language, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a euphemism for cleansing. It says, he will do the sprinkling. He will provide the cleansing. But who does it say he shall sprinkle? Who does it say he shall cleanse? What does the text actually say? Many nations, many nations. It doesn't say all nations. It doesn't say every single individual without exception. It's placing some parameters. It's placing some some specific limitations on whom this sprinkling was designed. So, and what's really interesting is that it is that that term goyim uh, rabim that many nations that does two things at the exact same time. It indicates first that this sprinkling cleansing work of the Messiah would have a global worldwide effect right? Many nations. It's global. It's worldwide. It's not just Jews. It's, it's all sorts of nations. But the use of many rules out the possibility that this sprinkling cleansing work is intended for every single individual without exception. Do, do you see that? It, it provides some limitations. It provides some, some parameters around who receives the, the sprinkling. Now, this is just one text, right? Isaiah doesn't tell us everything that's going on, but when you take this and you pile it on top of the other text that use the same kind of language, it bega- begins to become clear. So uh, look at Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. So I'm just going to walk through texts here. That, that'll be majority of what we do tonight is walk through texts. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, again, same context describing the, the anointed servant, the Messiah who would come and, and die for sinners. Notice, from the oppression of his soul, he shall see, he shall be satisfied with his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, this is Yahweh speaking about Christ, the righteous one, my servant shall justify the who? The many. And their iniquities he shall bear. Their iniquities, theirs in particular, he shall bear. 
Therefore, I shall allot to him the many, and the vast he shall divide as plunder. Kind of, basically, it's talking about uh, the, uh, is that those whom he saves will be his plunder. That's the idea. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. But he carried the sin of many, and he shall intercede for the transgressors. So, so what we see, again, does this tell us everything about the death of Christ? No, but, but what it does is it does give some, some indication for who were the intended recipients of salvation, namely the many. He bore the sins of many, not of every single individual without exception. Many would be justified, but not all. The Messiah would bear the iniquity and carry the sins of many, but not every single individual without exception. And, and so, and then people would say, yeah, yeah, but earlier, early, you know, earlier in the text, it says, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray, you know, and, and, and uses all language. True, it totally does. But, but what that, what that, the use of many, what it does is it more precisely defines who Isaiah is referring to. But when he says us and our and our iniquities and our peace, it, it, the use of many limits, rather it specifies what Isaiah is talking about earlier when he, in, in his use of all. So clearly, clearly Isaiah understands that the death of the Messiah will be for a particular group of people, whoever the many are. Okay, uh, skip a couple to Matthew uh, chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20 verse 28 And it says here, uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for who? For many. Again, the language echoes what? The, the language echoes what we just saw in Isaiah chapter 53. And, and furthermore, the many here describe those whom the saving work of Christ is actually applied. Notice, he gave his life as a ransom for many. The intention of his ransom was for many. It was intended. It was designed for a particular group of people, namely whoever the, the many is. Look down at Matthew twenty six twenty eight. He says, for, uh, and now, now here's the thing. The, the context here is, is the Passover meal. Right? This is hours before Christ is is crucified. If there's any time when Christ has an opportunity to talk about the exact nature of his death, which he was spent three years preparing for, now would be the time to say something pretty key about his death. Notice what he does say. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for who? For many, for the forgiveness of sins. This is massive. This is massive. The sacrificial death was intended for many. Many and not every single individual without exception were going to receive the salvation blessings of the new covenant. Again, I know I'm flying through these, um, but there, there are just so many texts here. Look at Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45. It's actually a parallel text to, to Matthew 20 verse 28. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for who? For many. Again, 
who Christ purchased with his death was not every single individual person without exception, but many, that is, particular souls. Particular souls who received the particular saving benefits of the death of Christ. And, and this is really important. It, it should be really, uh, we, we need to know that, that when Christ, when the Bible uses ransom or purchase or redemption language, that what's really important about that language is that when the Bible uses that language, it's, there's, there's never a theoretical object in view. When there is a payment made, when there is a purchase made, when there is a redemption made, when there is a ransom being paid, it's always, it's never with a hypothetical theoretical object. That, that, that reality just doesn't exist in the Bible. There's always a real, actual, physical object in view that you are paying for. And so my point is, if you, if you take the you know, well, that Christ died for every single person without exception. He died for everybody, but, you know, no one would, those people who hold that view probably wouldn't say this. He died for everybody, but for nobody in particular, that, that just doesn't work because ransom, payment, purchase language has a real object in view. It's definite. It's definite. So it's never theoretical to, to purchase someone, if, if that makes sense. Uh, look at John ten fifteen Again, all I'm trying to do here is, is, I mean, you could say more about each one of these passages. I just want to expose you to the, to the large array of verses that talk about verses in which Christ died for a particular group of people. John ten fifteen. Christ says, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, notice what he does, I lay my life down for the who? For the sheep. For the sheep. Now, again, there's no question. Okay, who does he, who does he die for? The sheep. That's who he's going to lay down his life for. It's just, just plain as day. No one can deny that. But what we have to ask are, okay, well, who are the sheep? Who are the sheep? Is this every single individual? It, it, was every person in history, in existence, died for at the cross? Is that what Christ is saying? Who are the sheep? And in verses 26 through 29, in fact, it might even be good to, do I have are John 10, 26 and 29 in your Bibles? Okay, good, good. So in verses 26 through 29, Christ defines precisely who are the sheep. He defines exactly who they are. And as we're about to see, sheep cannot include every single individual without exception. Can't. It cannot. So in verse 26, Christ tells the Pharisees that they are not sheep. That, that's astonishing. He, he says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Verse 15, I lay my life down for the who? For the sheep. Verse 26, you are not my sheep. <sighs> What was his impl- what, what did he just say there? To tell me the implication of that. What was he saying to the Pharisees? I'm not dying for you. I'm not dying for you. Or he foreknew they wouldn't accept him. Now, well, that's not what the text says. Right? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean maybe. And they're not his sheep, but he could foreknow that. Yeah, but there's no foreknowing here in, in, in the text. So, no, I'm now, now Jeff, now, now I'm not trying to, to ridicule you in front of anyone. I'm, I'm just saying maybe that's part of a broader theological thing. Maybe. Uh, I would go on to say, as we're about to see, uh, it's even stronger than foreknow. In, in fact, it's, it's choosing. And, and, and here's, here's what I mean. But, but we'll get to that in just a second. But yeah, it's, Christ is basically saying, I didn't die for you. 
That's, 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 that's shocking. Verses 27 through 29 in your notes, look what it says. Here's the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall not perish ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the, fa- out of the hand of the Father. That's a sheep. So what does a sheep do? They hear his voice. They, uh, he knows them. They follow Christ. They receive eternal life and they never ever perish and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Notice my father who has given them to me. And that's what I was talking about. That's election. That's election. It's stronger than foreknowing. It's, it, because all throughout the gospel of John, there's this language of father, just like those sheep that you gave me before time, I'm dying for them. The ones you gave to me, I'm dying for them. It, it's election is what this is. Now, here, here, here's the punchline. Not everyone follows Christ, do they? The sheep do. Not everyone believes, do they? The sheep do. Not everyone has or will have eternal life. Agreed? The sheep will. The sheep do. That's what he says. I give to them eternal life. Some people perish and go to hell, right? Not the sheep. Not the sheep. That's what he just said. Why? Because look what he says. He, the Father, has given them to me. And so, These are the people for whom Christ died. He died for the sheep. He died for those whom the Father gave him. And to them alone are given eternal life. The others, they have a different destiny. They have a different fate. Now, I understand all the the questions that come up. Okay, well, then what do we say to to people in gospel encounters? What do we say to them? Uh, do we tell people that Christ died for you? I mean, wh- what do we do with this? So I, I totally get it. Questions are good and, and you can ask them and, and we'll do our best to answer them. But I just want to expose that, that the Bible is clear that there's a particular group of people for whom Christ died. Uh, I'll skip John 11. There's just so many here. John 17 has clear implications. Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Let's do a, f- a few more here. Acts chapter 20. This is the, uh, the scene, the moving scene where, where Paul is, is going to go to Jerusalem. Remember that? He's going to go to Jerusalem, uh, definitely headed toward jail, probably headed towards death, towards execution. And he stops in, in Miletus and the elders from Ephesus come and they see him one last time. And he basically tells them, I'm never going to see you again. And they weep. They just break. They fall apart. They just don't come unraveled because this was their pastor. This was their shepherd. This is the one who taught them. And he has these sort of, I mean, just, just imagine the scene. The scene is very moving. You know, the, you know, the, they're on the beach, you know, the waves of the Mediterranean crashing behind them, the, the boat ready to go. Paul's giving this incredible, you know, this incredible, you know, counsel to these elders. Notice what he says, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, here it is, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
according to that verse, who did God pay for? And I think it's, the, the text is shocking, which God purchased with his own blood. Talking about Christ, the deity of Christ, who does the text say that God purchased with his blood? What does it say? The church. The church. That, that's what the text says. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's the specific object of the death of Christ. Now, people would automatically say, well, that's a lot of people. I mean, that, that's, that's 2,000 years worth of people. Sure, absolutely, that's a, that's a lot of people. And yet, is that every single individual person without exception? I don't think so. I don't think so. It, it can't mean that. And if you look really carefully at the text, you notice four things. Number one, you notice the finality of the payment. Notice the past tense of the verb. The church of God, which he purchased, purchased them. Payment made. The, the payment is finished. It's not an ongoing thing. Well, I'm doing little, I'm doing little deposits here and there. I'm doing, you know, it's, the, the payment is made. It, it's over. Those for whom Christ died have already been paid for. And again, there's that payment ransom language, right? You can't have someone be purchased and yet still go to hell. That, that, that's really key. You can't have someone purchased and paid for by the death of Christ, actually paid for, because there's nothing theoretical about a ransom, a, a salvation ransom. You can't be purchased by the death of Christ and perish in hell. That just, that just doesn't work. That's just that's not a reality of the Bible. Number two, Notice the actuality of the payment. The actuality, what I mean is, there was nothing theoretical about this payment. The real objects are in view. Christ did not die a potential ransom for everybody, but for nobody in particular. Rather, this was an actual ransom for particular people, and, and not every individual is included in that. So in other words, it is accomplished and, is, and it is finished. Number three, notice the effectuality of the payment. The effectuality of the payment. In other words, the church uh, was not just purchased in some, some general way. The church was purchased with the blood of God incarnate. It was purchased with his death. That means that the objects, the objects in view are actual recipients of what his death accomplished. Does that make sense? The people that he died, for whom he died, are receiving the benefits of what his death accomplished. So because of that, they, they can't go to hell. They can't perish. They, they've already been purchased and ransomed. So it's not theoret theoretical, it's, it's effectual, it is actual, and it is final. And again, number four, the beneficiary of the payment, namely the church. Again, Paul limits the scope and intention of his death, not to every single individual without exception, but, but in particular to the church. Now, I know this is hairy stuff. And again, there, um, you know, let me just say this now. Does this change anything about the urgency or necessity to evangelize? Not at all. It doesn't change a thing doesn't change a thing. In fact, I think it strengthens the passion and the courage to evangelize. And I'll, I'll explain that why at the end. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change anything about our responsibility to do anything. Um, but we have to reckon with, okay, even, even I'll put it this way, even if you don't accept the particular atonement view, which, which I'm really okay with, I, I want you to believe this. I think it's glorious and beautiful and breathtaking and exhilarating. And, and, and you have to at least admit 
that there's something going on with particular texts that, that the Bible makes clear that there was a particular object in view, that Christ did not die for everybody, but for nobody in particular, that the Bible's clear about that. You might have other ways of understanding that, and, that, and that's fine, but let's at least reason with one another that the Bible is clear uh, that something is going on here. Uh, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 25. We'll take a break in just a minute here. Ephesians 5, 25. I think it's really interesting. It's the, it's the great husbands and wives texts, right? What's really interesting though is that there's something profoundly salvation oriented here. Ephesians 5, 25. It's in your notes. You can turn in your Bibles if you want. He says, husbands, Love your wives even as Christ loved the church and literally delivered himself on her behalf. He died for who? For the church. So that he would sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water with the word in order that he would present himself, uh, the church to himself as glorious, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but in order that she would be holy and blameless. That was a rough translation. I must have done that a couple years ago. That was brutal. Um, but you get your point. Christ loved the church and he delivered himself for her in particular. Now, I love to use this. Um, it, it's very clear that the analogy of the death of Christ only works with faithful monogamous, monogamous marriage, doesn't it? It, it only works because there, there's this great parallel. So I, I like to put it this way. I love every woman in this room. I, I, I love you all. But there's one woman in particular to whom I am especially inclined. The, the, there's, there's one woman in particular that I especially favor and, and I am married to her alone. I have a unique relationship with her alone. I, I, no offense to the other women. I, I, I'm, I'm not in love with you in the same way. I love you, but not in the same way I love her. That's the analogy. <laughs> that's, that's the analogy. That there, there, of course, there is a universal love that God has for all sinners. No question. No one denies that. But... Um, Christ had a particular love for his bride and his death had a particular aim. It was intended in particular for her. I like to put it this way. There was an arranged marriage plan before the foundation of the world when God the Father singled out a bride of souls from every nation for his son and presented this bride to his son and these are the ones for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. And, and, and we sing this. If, if you've ever sung the, the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, you sing these words. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her. And for her life he died. We sing particular atonement. Maybe a couple more here. I'll do, I'll do one more. I'm skipping a couple in Hebrews that are really good and really helpful, but let me, let me finish with Revelation 5, 9, which I, which I think is the slam dunkiest of, of them all. I mean, this thing is really, if, I think it's the clearest text out of all of them, and it's a glorious text. We read it this morning during our, uh, our corporate prayer time. Uh, and, you know, it's that great scene in heaven. And they sang a new song, Worthy Are You, singing to Christ. Worthy are you to take the book, 
and open its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood every single person without exception. It doesn't say that. You were slain and you purchased for God with your blood some, some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Notice, notice, the ones who were actually purchased were not every single individual without exception. The ones who were purchased, ransomed, were some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. So this is an actual and, and, and not hypothetical benefactors, right? There, there's nothing theoretical about the text here. They, they past tense, reality, have been purchased. It's over. The payment's been made. The father's not going to go back on his son's payment. The, the payment is over. And it's for a particular group of people. So we'll back up here. Um, when, we, when we look at the Bible, we see explicit texts that Christ did not die for every single individual without exception. What we see is that Christ's death, again, you you might view those texts in another way and and interpret them in another way, and no one's offended by that, and you have every right to do that. But I I think that the, the burden of proof is on you to indicate what it means that Christ died for the many, what it means that he died for that he died for the called as Hebrews 9 talks about, what it means that he died for the sheep, what it means that he died for the church, and what it means that he died for some from every nation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about particular atonement. Um, I have four more reasons why I think you should believe this, but let's, let's do this. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you take a break? That was a lot. Take a break. Five, no, e, four minutes. Four minutes, okay? That's very generous of me, by the way. So grab some food, grab some water, stretch your legs, and we'll come back in just a little bit.